I started, I think I took it every training pretty serious. I'm I'm actually serious man. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 129 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's a serious man. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash team tactics and yes a review to get us underway today great podcast five stars from hallian i got onto damien's podcast on the recommendation of a track coach and have enjoyed the topics presented there is always a good mix of discussion and examination of what the results of various studies may mean to one's training the recent podcast about investigating literature reviews and how an N plus one sample size is needed was a delight, as by day I'm a scientist and the views expressed were spot on. Question the results and see if they can be backed up. If you don't know about something or have questions, ask. For cyclists wanting to enhance their annual training programs, hear about recent studies, get the lowdown on race tactics, or just be entertained, this is a great podcast. And that is a great review. I am super grateful that you took the time out to write that review. And if you like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because sometimes I get a little upset when there's no reviews. But then I remember that I should just... Suéltalo, suéltalo, love and go, love and go. Alrighty, the performance probe and probe number one, a pilot study on quantification of training load, the use of HRV in training practice. So recent lab studies have suggested that heart rate variability, HRV, may be an appropriate criterion for training load quantification. These include, can HRV be used to evaluate training load in constant load exercises, which concluded that increased intensity or duration of exercise decreased immediate HRV recovery, suggesting that post-exercise HRV may enable an objective evaluation of training load in field conditions. The first two-minute recovery seems to give enough information on HRV recovery for evaluating training load. Another study is heart rate variability is related to training load variables in interval running exercises. And the results of this study suggest that immediate post-exercise HRV may offer objective information on training load of interval exercises with different bout durations and intensities. But back to this study and This study aimed to validate a novel HRV index that may be used to assess training load in field conditions. 11 well-trained long-distance male runners performed four exercises of different duration. Training load was evaluated using the FOSTER method, commonly known as the Session Rating of Perceived Exertion method. This method of monitoring training load requires each athlete to provide an RPE for each exercise session, along with 
a measure of training time. To calculate a measure of session intensity, athletes are asked within 30 minutes of finishing their workout a simple question such as, how was your workout? A single number representing the magnitude of training load for each session is then calculated by the multiplication of training intensity by the training session duration in minutes. The banister method was also used, something that I have brought up in the past, but as a reminder, the banister method, commonly known as TRIMP, T-R-I-M-P, which stands for Training Impulse, takes into consideration the intensity of exercise as calculated by the heart rate reserve method and the duration of exercise. The mean heart rate for the training session is weighted accordingly to the relationship between heart rate and blood lactate as observed during incremental exercise and then multiplied by the session duration. In addition to these methods, HRV measurements were performed 5 minutes before exercise and 5 and 30 minutes after exercise. They calculated HRV index based on the ratio between HRV decrease during exercise and HRV increase during recovery. HRV decrease during exercise was strongly correlated with exercise intensity, but not exercise duration or training volume. HRV index was correlated with Foster and Bannister methods, and this study confirms that HRV changes during exercise and recovery phase are affected by both intensity and physiological impact of the exercise since the HRV index formula takes into account the disturbance of the return to homeostatic balance induced by exercise this new method provides an objective and rational training load index however some simplification of the protocol measurement could be envisaged for field use in some ways the problem of quantifying training load has been solved if you use a power meter at least we have a solid way to measure performance and map training sessions without the need for subjective input so this study may not be as relevant to cyclists as it is to sports that don't use power meters on the other hand though HRV has been kicking around for a while now and from the first time I discovered it I wondered where it fits into the training quantification equation and for me having a more reliable way to take advantage of using heart rate to measure stress is very useful especially when making a direct comparison with a performance management chart as it doesn't tell the entire story of an athlete being a heart rate based measurement it would take into account general stress and life outside of cycling and enable monitoring from afar and this has enough merit to keep me interested and up-to-date on HRV. While this study hasn't produced a working model, it is definitely a step in the right direction. So watch this space. Probe number two, use of cranial stimulation to relieve pain in cycling, looking at the science behind Team Sky 2020. This is an article that I came across on a blog called shutup-legs.com. And it touches on how Team Sky, who are always looking for an edge, have revealed that they are investigating how transcranial magnetic stimulation 
TMS could improve performance. TMS is a non-invasive method used to stimulate small regions of the brain. The basic principle of TMS is that an electrical current is passed through a magnetic coil. The coil can be a handheld device or attached to a machine and it moves around specific areas of the head. The current in the device generates a brief intense magnetic field that passes through the scalp and induces an electrical field in the brain. Currently, the use of this technology in brain stimulation is primarily investigational. However, it was approved by the FDA for use in migraines and treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. Clinical evidence has shown that the technique may be useful for negative symptoms of schizophrenia and loss of function caused by heart stroke. But what does this have to do with Team Sky trying to beat Contador? Although by 2020, I'm sure they're going to be retired. Anyway, the use of TMS for cycling performance may be linked to pain suppression. The author of this article goes on to say... Pain judgments are subjective, as Noak's 2012 paper described in its title, Fatigue, therefore, is a brain-derived emotion that regulates the exercise behavior to ensure the protection of whole-body homeostasis. I won't get into this now, but I have recently listened to a great interview that has a different take on the central governor model proposed by Noak's, but anyway... If we just stick with that for the time being, Godall et al. in 2014 described that the application of TMS in sports science could be a valuable technique for exploring these mechanisms of central fatigue and neural adaption. In theory, TMS could stimulate through a brief, high-intensity magnetic field a small area of the brain below the coil. Many studies have already focused on the motor cortex, which is a region of the cerebral cortex. It's in the middle of the head, and it's involved with planning, control, and execution of voluntary movements. Assessing the potential for this technique to be applied in sports science today, it is clear there is some years to go. Here's what information is currently available regarding pain suppression. Pain, the anterior cingulate cortex, ACC, is an area of the brain active in the experience of all types of pain. In 2012, a group from Stanford presented at the Society for Neuroscience the potential of RTMS, which is repetitive TMS, to treat many kinds of pain using magnetic impulses at the ACC of healthy volunteers for 30 minutes, the researchers then placed a hot plate onto their arm and recorded their sensations of pain. Those subjects that had undergone RTMS rated the pain nearly 80% lower than controls with PET scans revealing blunted activity at the ACC site. Wow. So, in theory, RTMS could be applied pre-race or at even some point in the future feature in a helmet although we all highly doubt it, including the author and myself, but it would be there to try and relieve the pain sensation for riders. But as the author says, don't get excited about the science quite yet. Its application in sport, both clinically proven and approved by the regulatory bodies, is still quite a few years in the future. But look at this. This is the charge you expected from the chasers. They've come together. 
Smart stop has Marcotte leading out McCabe. If he can do this, Eric Marcotte, who has worked all day long, but no, from United Healthcare, will it be McCabe? Can he do it? Marcotte held it. Marcotte held it. Marcotte This is Eric Marmot winning the U.S. Pro National Championships in 2014. How did he get to that point, though? What's the story behind the win? If we take it back and we look at all the different options that were available to Marcotte and his team, Team SmartStop, at the U.S. Pro National Championships in 2014, we would see that there's a few ways that this race could have played out, even before the start of the race, So this episode is based on Brandon Hale's article on Cycling Illustrated. It's called How Eric Marcotte Won the Pro US Championships. I have mentioned this article before a couple of times, but this is the best way to follow a race and all of the potential team tactics that can be used to win in a race. If we break down any bike race, it really only comes down to three or four or five massive explosive efforts. It's either closing that gap, making that break, holding that wheel up that climb, responding to that attack, or nailing that bunch sprint. That's it. These are the critical moments that require all of your effort. So when you are looking for ways to win, you have to take into account This Venn diagram, the first circle is know yourself and your team. It just goes through your strengths and weaknesses. Are you weak on the climbs? Are you a poor bunch sprinter? Are you a good time trialist? Are you a sprinter? And of course, teams then will be built around the potential of one rider being able to do one of these things really, really well. In Team Smart Stop, they have a few options to play at any one-day race, like the US Pro Nationals. They have riders that can get over lumpy courses and sprint, and riders that can ride in breakaways and sprint well in small groups. The second circle in the Venn diagram is know your competition. Are they any good at any of the above that I have mentioned? When you do your strength and weakness analysis, do theirs so you know are they any good. And also, does their team have any special race tactics from their size to their depth of their sprint train? What do they bring to the race as a team that makes it difficult for you to win in certain ways? In the US Pro Nationals, the normal favorites do not typically have the full support of their respective teams. Pro Tour riders are only able to enter a reduced squad or even just a single rider. So this is where US domestic teams have a number advantage, but not at the same quality as the Pro Tour squad. So they can't force the peloton to race on their terms. The advantage favors whichever group is best able to leverage their strategy and make the US Pro Nationals more wide open than many realize. And the third and final circle in the Venn diagram is know your course. Races only come in a couple of forms or a couple of ways that you can win. Flat sprint finishes, uphill sprint finishes, finishes on top of a hill, sprint finishes after a lumpy race. There's only a few ways that you can really win a race if you break down and look at it all. Also, there are a couple of rules of thumb. The shorter the race, the faster the start will be, and the more technical and challenging, the faster the start will be. The US Pro Nationals were 103.6 miles, which is 166.7 kilometers, which is a long race. Once the riders start to really define the outcome, they really only have around two hours of full throttle 
as a relative term, the decision of when to use the throttle to best maximize its effectiveness becomes extremely important in a race approaching four and a half hours. Any way you cut it, conserving the limited time at full throttle is incredibly important in a race this long. If the race was a pure sprint finish, then the sprint teams, or at least the team with the fastest rider, is the team that has the race to lose. Same if it was a stage race, the top GC riders team has to do some work to control the race because they have a lot to lose. In this race, Team Smart Stop wanted to get as many riders as possible into an early break, knowing that it would be hard to control a chase from the peloton. So the race itself, USA Cycling organized the parkour into three tidy sets of circuits, which makes for an easy, distinguishable beginning, middle, and ending chapter to the race. So the beginning, the beginning of a race, the magnitude of the US Pro Championships is the setting which these circumstances could very well be the most important part of the race. The beginning is when teams and riders try to place themselves into a strategically advantageous position to win the race later down the road. Conversely, the teams that are not well represented or don't fancy their riders' chances in the break will need to devise a strategy to keep any gap manageable, thus keeping the race winnable. Meanwhile, the riders without a team presence are relegated to sitting and waiting for something to happen that would offer an opportunity to impact the race. At the beginning, it all comes down to the early break. The break can sometimes take up to 50 kilometers to stick, meaning that the pace is really on until this point. And this is shown in Eric's numbers from the time Eric first launched to join the break until the break was established was about 20 minutes into the race. For those first 20 minutes, Eric's average speed was 28.9 miles per hour, 46.5 kilometers per hour at a normalized power of 387 watts. Equally impressive is that Eric spent around 7 minutes and 30 seconds above 500 watts during this time. So this hard, super hard effort, while definitely burning some matches, ultimately put Eric in the defining move of the day and was a great investment for both Team Spartstop and Eric. If you're in a race and the break is away and you're in it, like Eric, or you have a teammate who is in it, or in the case of this race where Smart Stop had two riders in the break, job done. Time to focus on strategy and conserving energy. Do have a teammate in the break with you. It's time to decide straight away who has a better chance of winning so that they can conserve energy from the start. If you or a teammate are in the break and another teammate is trying to bridge and can't quite make it across, the rider in the break can actually drop back to help his teammate out and bring them back across. The composition of the break is key though. So when you're in the break, you have to look around and see who's in the break. And first, no sprinters allowed. Not only do they have a potential free ride to the finish, their team will not have to chase. Second, don't let too many riders up the road. In short, neither quality nor quantity. You may have to drop some riders if you don't like the composition of the breakaway that you're in. You can do this by taking short pulls, so keeping any pull under 30 seconds, and then you wait for someone to sit on the front for a minute or two, and when they're done, and if you don't need them in the break, drive the pace up to 50 kilometers an hour and pop them off the back. 
if you aren't in the break, so you didn't make the move and you wanted to, you now have to consider bridging across. You can try and trick other riders into doing the work for you. So for example, if there was a break that you could still see, there's possibly on a flat road, 800 meters away, for example, where you know that you could bridge, but you don't want to pull others up with you, go to the front and do repeated short pulls of around 15 seconds to drive the pace. This way, you're hoping to flush out any twitchy riders that are taking turns with you. And once someone does spring out from the peloton, jump on their wheel, and then the moment that their pace drops, sprint around them and rocket yourself into no man's land and TT the remaining distance to the lead group alone, Maybe the other rider will catch up, maybe they won't, but you've been able to get there using the least energy possible. Once all this settles down though, which is generally not until the teams that want to control the race are happy with the composition of the break, the peloton will sit up even if it's just briefly, which depending on the type of race, this is the team that either has a sprinter in it or the top GC rider, and they're the ones that definitely will try and control who goes into that breakaway. So this signals the end of the beginning. In a pro race, maybe the pillow stops for a nature break, or in other races, it might just mean that you're getting riders swarming in the peloton, and it slows down and rolls along at a pretty manageable pace. Then we move on to the middle of the race. So once some time has passed, the other teams now are also deciding how they want to best handle the situation. In the US Pro Nationals and most other races, one of three outcomes is likely. The first one is the advantage gets out of hand, and in this scenario, the break gains an unsurmountable advantage. The teams realize that the time gap is huge, but because of the conditions and length of the race, there is insufficient horsepower to neutralize it. The peloton crumbles in the chase, and no counter move ever materializes. And this is where you're done if you didn't have anyone in the break. If you do, however, then it's time to start playing cat and mouse in the break. Here, there is an element of luck, but a lot of it has to do with patience and saving yourself for that one explosive moment that you can take an opportunity to win the race. The second likely outcome is the move is held to a short time gap and is caught at the end for some sort of field sprint. We definitely see this scenario in the sprinter stages in Grand Tours. The short leash results in the brake having to ride flat out in order to maintain their lead. Meanwhile, the peloton behind churns along, burning some riders in the process, but ultimately catching the escapees in the last few miles or kilometers of the race. When they do catch the brake, the peloton finds the escapees completely Completely exhausted from their efforts, effectively ending the race for them as the field sprint starts to wind up. When there is a sprinter's team or a GC team that is strong enough to pull this off, a chase will start. In the pro peloton, once a gap is at around five minutes or so, depending on the size of the break and the length and profile of the stage, the team that wants the win or to minimize the break will need to start riding at the front. It's also at this point that the chasing team or teams should be at 50 kilometers to go with with a five minute gap. This is because Chapet's law or Chapet's theory, which states that a rider or breakaway with a minute's lead with 10 kilometers to go should be able to hold on for the win. And you can extrapolate this to two minutes for 20 kilometers, three minutes for 30 kilometers. It's not guaranteed, of course, but it's a good rule of thumb. It is a good rule of thumb as well for chasing teams because they know that they can pull in a little bit faster 
between kilometer 10 and kilometer 5 and then hopefully catch them at 5 because if it all goes to plan at 10 kilometers and the gap is within reach they want to hold off because if you catch a break too early it could open the race up to attacks and it's not until five kilometers to go that the breakaway will hopefully be caught and now the teams that are vying for the sprint are starting to really get serious if you're not one of these teams and have a team with a rider or two in an early move you have a couple of options at this point to make sure the break stays away until the end these involve slowing down the chase and here's a couple of ways to do this the first is where you sit on or near the front and refuse to help set the pace something that is actually frowned upon by most riders this type of negative racing can be carried out in a number of ways the most obvious is being a total jackass team and using the entire team to ride across the entire road the other is taking turns at the front and soft pedaling or riding at a false tempo which is rolling through but not putting everything into your turns so instead of making enemies or getting put into the ditch try the second option which is attacking the chase experienced riders may ignore you realizing that you won't ride away from a pace line on your own on the other hand they may respond to your attack when you're already working hard in a pace line making an anaerobic effort hurts really bad some of the chasers may start to think about getting some shelter those that remain will have some of the wind taken out of their sails the chase will take some time to get organized again as discussed earlier this race had no super teams with numbers to pull this off so it didn't happen this time around the third outcome though the break is held at a moderate time gap and is caught late when the peloton explodes in this scenario the true contenders will come from the peloton in a late counter move and will be fresher because they had the luxury of conserving energy for the majority of the race this was predicted to be the case at the u.s pro nationals but it was mostly a combination of this and outcome one in the u.s pro nationals the five minute gap came really early at around 49 minutes and like i mentioned before this is when the peloton or a team or two is forced to show its hand if it's your team that is doing the chasing to set up for a final sprint the fewer riders you use at this point the better because you want to save as many as possible for the final lead out there is a real possibility of of burning riders too fast and having no assets left to leverage tactics late but if you don't do something and the gap continues to run out eventually becoming unreachable the same thoughts are going through the minds of every rider in the break they need to make a decision on how much to push the limit of the peloton's patience if the time gap goes too high it could spark an intense reaction if the gap comes too low then riders try and bridge across and the ensuing racing will likely bring everything back together nullifying the efforts of the break they most likely wanted to keep it at around a five minute gap at least until the 50 kilometer to go mark the danger with a break for the teams that are chasing down a break is that if it's caught too early because the chase is not timed right then it can spark new attacks from fresher riders same in a breakaway if riders are attacking off the front of a break they either know they're going to get caught or they're just crazy 
or crazy good. If the break is caught early, then you have to go on the attack. This sometimes is the best tactic if you aren't the team riding for the win, have the lead GC rider, or have burnt out all of your teammates. This is called the counter-attack and happens because of the lull in the peloton directly after the early break is caught. Firstly, though, before you do attack, know your wind. Yes, they can battle against the wind and offer protection, and that's what they're going to need today. So the wind uh, blowing up, I can tell you that it uh, has already had a a huge impact. Uh, It means that today is going to be that windy challenge that we always expect when we come to Qatar. Once you understand where the wind is, you can plan your attack for the right moment because knowing when to launch a successful attack is going to make your low odds of staying away slightly better. But when to attack though? Attack when riding in a crosswind or up an incline. Somewhere where you can generate power if you aren't a pure sprinter, that is. That's it. Don't attack into strong headwinds. It's too hard to get the separation needed. Don't attack into a tailwind. Don't attack because it's too easy. Don't attack on descents. Although you've seen riders at pro level do this, it's not really worth it. Most riders that have got away with it have a TT pedigree to back it up. Crosswinds are the best place to attack because each rider has to work as hard as the next just to hang on. There's no way to easily swap off turns in a chasing peloton. The advantage is with a group of riders here, but solo can also work if you are a monster. Inclines are the other place to attack. Again, there is nowhere to hide. So if you wait for the moment, then everyone will be suffering. You just have to outsuffer all the other riders. Team Smart Shop didn't have to worry about this though. It was positioned well strategically with two riders in the break to make catching the breakaway difficult, if not impossible. Furthermore, the high quality riders who accompanied Eric and Julian Kaya from Team Smart Shop made the task of neutralizing the break even more daunting. You make sure Eric's taking it easy, man, because we need him to get over that climb. Alright, you know? No, just play cool. Like both of you guys can win this race. If it goes Abe share on the climb the final time, you can win this race. If it comes down on the group like this, Eric can win the race. You guys are fucking race winners, you gotta act like it, alright? So now it comes down to the end of the race. The final 50 minutes of racing in the U.S. Pro Nationals was all about the breakaway. When the lead group of 12 consolidated in the finishing circuits, there were three smart shop riders, Marcotte, Julian Kaya, and Travis McCabe, with Travis being the most fresh, but also one of the fastest finishers. They were definitely in the driver's seat for the race, and they executed a tactically perfect race. The ensuing move and counter moves were fierce and with a small group, everyone has to respond to everything. In fact, Eric did a little over 9 minutes of effort at greater than 500 watts during this portion of the race. To put that into perspective, during 85 minutes at the NCC Tulsa Tough Races, less than 13 minutes of the same effort is produced. In the final 20 minutes, Eric's normalized power was 372 watts. Into the straight, Eric went early with McCabe on his wheel. It could have been seen as a poor man's lead out because a poor man's lead out only requires one other teammate. It wasn't though, and here's why. One of the two teammates in a poor man's lead out, the weaker sprinter, which is McCabe, puts in a late attack while the sprinter, Marcotte, sits on. Like all great cycling tactics, it gives your opponents two choices, neither of which has much appeal. Namely, they can either chase the rabbit down and lead the sprinter 
opponent out or they cannot chase and let the rabbit win. This can work in field sprints when you don't have enough people to do a proper lead out, but it is most effective out of breakaways because the sprints are slower and there are few people to keep track of and normal lead outs are fairly pointless in breakaways. The poor man's lead out, however, is incredibly effective since everyone is probably tired and therefore likely to hesitate. The rabbit wins more often in this situation. So hopefully I've done a good job of explaining the various options available to teams in races. There are a million tactics and even more scenarios that can play out in a race. It's hard to be involved in all of them, which makes it even harder to learn them. So I'll leave you with this from an interview on Cycling Tips with Avanti Racing's Andrew Christie Johnson. Between the ages of 18 and 30, he took a great interest in the team tactics of cycling and wanted to use them to help his Pradis members overcome the TIS. I had a massive interest in cycling and everything you watch on television is team orientated. In Tassie, we always had to watch the same 12 individuals race the TIS and if you want to be competitive and have a bit more fun, you really needed to get a team together. Once we became more successful than TIS and started beating them regularly, we thought we would challenge ourselves and go see what the National Road Series was all about. We got a rude shock. Fast forward to the present and one of Christy Johnson's most impressive achievements is his tactical nous. And it comes despite never having raced beyond state level. His secret, however, is simple. Watch television. Lots of television. At the end of the day, you've got to be prepared to research. It's not a hard job, explained Christy Johnson. You can be in the team car at world level or be there yourself as a rider, but you're only seeing it from one perspective. With the great TV viewing that we have of some of the big races in the world, you can literally spend years and years watching bike races. And that's exactly what Christy Johnson did. Andrew Christie Johnson is widely regarded as an astute strategist despite having limited racing experience. You can always analyze the tactics and strategy beyond every race. You can learn so much just from that, he said. Whereas the rider, he might just have one role at a time. And I know from my own team that a rider's perspective can be so different to what happened in reality. They can only see so much themselves. And the DSs, again, we can only see so much. But the audience out there get to see everything. And because Christy Johnson hasn't raced extensively on the road, he used his TV research as a knowledge base instead. Because I knew that I hadn't been the best rider and competed in the best events, that if I wanted to be the best strategy-wise, that the only way I could do it was to sit back and be far more analytical. I looked at some races with replay after replay after replay just to see the crucial decisions made. And that's what it takes to be good at races in races when you are directing races or whatever your role is in a team This is part of the learning process. So go out there, make mistakes, fix them, learn, and go win some bike races. Now, let's get to the tech hacks and products section. This week, it's a product called SenseCore. And yes, it is another body sensor. It's a $330 USD cycling kit that holds two dry electrodes that record medical grade ECG, heart rate, calories, EPOC, Excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, true respiration, breath rate, body temperature, three-axis acceleration, speed, pace, distance, forward acceleration, cadence, and total steps. 
This thing is more serious than other contenders in this space and has a lot of metrics, but it fails in my mind. Right now, the world does not need more metrics. It needs better understanding of the old ones. Plus, everything in this list comes second to power. Don't waste your money. Buy a power meter instead. If you have a power meter, buy another one for your second bike. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Michael the Flower Kiowalski. Is it this seriousness that gets him results like the rainbow jersey? Probably. He started out riding at eight and he hasn't stopped since. His 2015 season started at the Tour de Saint Louis. And like I say every year, let's hope he doesn't have the curse of the rainbow jersey and his results keep coming. His first real test... Strata Bianchi. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash team tactics to find any links used in this week's episode. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave and the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Um, so, could you tell me what the team plan was going into the race? Just what I mean, happened. Uh, obviously, you guys wanted to be aggressive. Oh, just what happened. Uh, I mean, in an ideal world, we were kind of racing for Josh and um, Travis to make that final selection over the top and be with the top guys. And Julian was obviously riding well fourth place in the TT, so he was kind of a, um, a wild card as far as finishing off and doing really well, which he did. And um, I was just going to be a workhorse and hopefully make the break make it over the top on the last climb and, and help uh, Travis and Josh when they made it to me and put them in a position to win. And um, I think a lot of stuff happened that I have no idea behind me. And uh, the race started to get closer and closer to the finish and it just get it. We had three guys in that final uh, selection and it just, as it has all the, the year, has just been unbelievable and and played right into what we wanted to have happen. Right. And um, you were dropped on that final climb and you, you came back on the descent. Um, how many? How much risk did you take on the descent? How, how difficult was that to well, get back up there? Well, I had told Julian when I, we knew Ben and um, who was it? Chris, Chris, was, Chris Jones from UHC was still looking strong. I knew those guys were going to attack and I said, I feel really good. Julian just follow them because he's going really well and just don't help him out um, over the top and I stayed within um, you know my limits and I think they uh, with about 500 meters when the steep spot comes they had about 30 seconds and then I just sprinted as hard as I could over the top and I got within about 15 and then I caught him on the descent I mean I didn't really take that big of a risk but I knew uh, coming down that hill a couple times with those guys that they weren't you know I'm a little heavier rider so I had a little bit more momentum than they did so it was really played into my my cards to stay within my zone and not try to follow that over the top and there's I mean we had so much time before the finish and it I just had to I had to get on it a little bit on the downhill to catch them but yeah it was I'm still well within my reach there one of the few times when being a bigger guy helps out. Huh? Totally. Yeah. It was good. Uh, Had that breakfast this morning. Two breakfasts. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, when uh, when the, the chase group came up to the lead group, was uh, 
was there any disappointment? Was because uh, those guys are all, maybe all a little fresher, or were you still pretty confident think, that the plan worked yeah, out? Well, I mean, certainly you're you're wary because you don't know who maybe did the least amount of work and who maybe still was fresh. But I mean, you got to understand those guys were just ripping it up that climb behind us, so that definitely taps into their reserves and. The way the, the way the way the brake was riding it, we were, I mean, at least I was, I tried to stay within my uh, limits to, you know, help my team when they came up to me. Okay. Um, and so uh, when you saw that it was going to be a fairly good sized group coming into the finish, I don't know, it was like 10 or 13 guys. Um, was the plan uh, to work for Travis then in the sprint? Um, actually, what would you say, Trav, maybe two laps to go, or maybe three laps to go when you caught us, uh, he came up to me and asked how I was doing because he said he was cramping and not feeling so good, and honestly, at that point, I think we all, yeah, Julian, yeah. Travis, and I decided it was going to go for me. Yeah, it was pretty much, the initial plan was, yeah, for me to bridge, and then, you know, they, they'd work for me in the sprint, but as soon as we bridged that... Was I think maybe the third time of Kent Street, the third lap, my uh, I just cramped up that thing, and so I was hurting pretty bad. Even though I kind of got a free ride, I I was kind of I was in the red, and I just came up to Eric and I asked him how he was feeling, and he just nodded his head. So I, I knew he was good. <laughs> I knew he was more than good, you know. Right. Uh, so I was like, all right, man, it's you, and that was it. Um, uh, pretty much I, at that point I was just like alright well I'm just going to follow moves and keep everything together but Zwanski attacked and I followed him I look back and there's just me, Zwanski and uh, Tim no, Tim's last Jim name. Stemper that was Jim? Yeah. oh Jim Stemper and so we just rolled it and everyone's kind of looking around and it was perfect because then again Eric and Julian don't have to work they sit on force everyone else to chase and right. uh, that last K on the descent Eric just came flowing by me took the corner hotter than anyone probably could <laughs> like I don't know anyone who can corner better than Eric and he had he probably had like a meter on me if not more coming into the sprint and it's just it's game over you know it's such a hard race no one can really if you have a kick and a sprint like Eric and I did that's you guys, it did you guys double post post two? I did yeah I, oh, I, like, I, can't wait to see them. I just had my head like hands over my head like <laughs> this this really just happened I don't oh. think Eric posted up I, I was just like what in the world <laughs> <laughs> what in the world just happened yeah I mean we, we both sprinted all out, and no there's there no way I was coming around him. No way. Right. He's, he's by far the strongest, so uh, it worked out well. Like, I, I knew if it's such, it seems like such a long sprint, but if you come into that corner fast and carry momentum, it's you, what we're used to, 15 seconds, 10 seconds of all out effort. That's what we, what we did. So it's a sprint you can win leading out of that last corner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Obviously. <laughs> um, so, uh, Eric, when did you know, when did you realize that, I think that you were going to pull it off? With about 100 meters to go, I just said, this, mm -hmm. is, this is unreal. 
like do not right. let up until you cross that line. I did not even want to post up <laughs> until I finished right. that race because I just, you know, never do that. And um, but a hundred meters, I said if I if I stay with what I still have left, like I, th I thought it was Travis behind me, but I definitely didn't want to like um, yeah. take a chance. You know, I just didn't know. Right. I wasn't going to look. I just was going for the races in front of me, you know? I mean, I'm not finished. Right.